Welcome to the Meltzone podcast from July 12th, 2020. This is episode 36. I'm Tom. And I'm Stefan. And after quite a while of no podcast, we have some interesting topics for you. 3D printed food once again, lots of news from Asia. We talk about, yeah, uh, TCT Asia that has been last week. And uh, if, if we are going to attend Form Next this year, that uh, is still not canceled yet. Um, then Creality claims to have shipped over half a million printers in one month. That is more than they shipped all last year, which is really interesting. Um, more Creality news. Uh, we just discuss um, a patent that seemed to have popped up that includes um, leveling a 3D printer using strain gauges and that is exactly what the CR6SE does and if we think that could influence like sales of that machine in Europe and um, if even other printers like the Ultimaker or the Smart Effector from Duet could actually infringe that patent. Yeah, and if you do manage to grab one of those printers, how do you then tune it in? Um, we covered two approaches to a assisted or semi-automated um, slicer settings tuning. And we also cover some of your questions. So we talk about a new approach of doing 3D printed supports that are easy to remove but do not require a dual extruder setup. We cover uh, filament recycling, whether it's PLA, PTG, and whether it makes sense to actually ship those back to manufacturers for recycling. Where do you learn about metal lathing and milling? Two 3D printing channels who are both kind of dabbling into metal work. Um, Stefan has a lot to say about that. And lastly, can the Mini print ASA safely? And it might even be able to print polycarbonate. So we discussed that as well. It is good to be back. It's, it's, it's been a hot minute, man. Yeah. Time, well, times are pretty busy at the moment. I'm, I'm still happy to see that you still look sane after your like video marathon for the last five, five weeks. Yeah. Your I hair has... I need a haircut, though. Yeah, I also definitely need a <laughs> so, haircut. So do you, yeah. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> I mean, I, I know how you look with a, with a fresh haircut usually, and you don't look like that right now. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. So we we've both been been pretty busy. I mean, for me, the the massive beginner video series, man, so, so many videos, so short notice. Um, yeah, yeah. two <laughs> two videos in a week. I I just can't really imagine how much work that's gotta be scripting everything out and recording everything and cutting everything and pre-releasing them for for sponsors and stuff like yeah. that so yeah on, i mean on the one hand it's like okay these are what i would call easier videos um these are the sort of videos that i was doing at the beginning of, of when i started my channel where it's just okay something that i already know about and i'm just putting it from my brain into a script um but on the same hand it's you know, doing two a week, it is still so much more work than uh, doing regular releases. And I've looked at my older videos and it was like five shots of B-roll in the entire thing. <laughs> and now I'm doing like a full script and like I've had videos where it was 70 shots um, that I still had to capture. So it's, they've gotten more complex. Um, 
but yeah i've gotten comments like hey yeah now now we've got sponsors and now you're managing to re- finally re- release some videos um and i'm like yeah well hold on there for a second uh first of all again th- those are those are easy videos and also i've not had a life for like the last one and a half months so i mean we've not been doing podcasts i've not i've I've barely managed to do some laundry every now and then um so it's basically taking a credit from the future me uh and being like okay now it's all all done and now you can catch up on everything else that you've not been doing (laughs) while producing those videos yeah it's been fun yeah, so it's been, well, it's been an experience. Let's put it <laughs> and people are liking them. Will Will you continue to well go back to your normal schedule, trying to have like one video a week or at least well one every two weeks? Well, one fully produced video a week is already like hitting it pretty hard. No. Um, if it's like a, a project or a review or something along those lines, it is kind of hard to do it within one week and to uh, to still have a life yeah <laughs> like that's that's the that's the balance you have to find somewhere um so yeah right now uh, i'm taking a bit of a break quote unquote um and uh yeah next one's gonna be in 10 days from now roughly okay um but yeah every i'm, I'm planning for every two weeks and if something comes up i'm gonna have the flexibility to do uh you know an extra one that sounds that sounds pretty good so yeah at least you're taking a little bit time off because after such a insane amount of work it's it's good to to do something differently yeah uh i mean i've right the moment the first the last video got released um i just went right into the next bit of work which was putting up drywall in my bathroom um (laughs) doing a new ceiling um yeah, kind of similar to, to what you've been up to. Yeah, well, not really drywall yet, but yeah, the new roof is is above my head. Um, we still don't have any shingles up there, and also our solar panels are still missing. We have some delay in the work, uh, in the workforce, or some problems with the workforce. I hope that, well, next week we finally have new shingles on our roof um, the solar panels are there and i can start putting the electrics in to um, hopefully also kind of in a timely manner install the solar system to my well to the grid because i i, I really i'm really looking forward to to use my old own uh well locally produced electrons on my roof yeah, it it is pretty satisfying, especially if you have like real time tracking and all that. It does get quite addictive. Um, actually, I should put my phone into flight mode. Um, <laughs> it, it does get really addictive just watching. Okay, today I've I've done you know this percentage of just my own power, and you get the predictions of okay, in the morning you should probably turn on your your washer, and then you know if you get the dryer in right after that, you can do that. But if you start it at night, like, or you know next morning it's going to be cloudy, so maybe mm-hmm. don't use too much electricity. It, it's it's nice it's uh it's addictive and when you can automate that sort of stuff it's i really it's need, a lot of fun. i really need to dive into that as soon as everything is installed right here because um since we don't have um a battery for our solar system yeah. in here installed yet because i don't know if it really makes sense and they are quite expensive um i am looking forward sorry <clears throat> 
<clears throat> to put some intelligence into the system to have a couple of yeah. things automated, some some smart sockets on the wall to start the washer and things like that, or just a panel that tells you, okay, it if you need to do the laundry, do it this morning because later the weather's going to be worse yeah. and stuff like that. I don't know what already existed uh, already exists uh, in in that direction, but I think with you I have a pretty good person to talk to to get some hints. Yeah, we, we are running on different systems, so I'm I'm on uh, SMA. Yeah. Um you're on Fronius, which yep. is probably the better company to to pick, but I'm not locked into SMA. I, I you know, they're, they're not cross compatible. Um but yeah, it's a lot of that is actually already out there. So what my system can do is you get the Idiomux uh, smart plugs and the um it's not the the inverter itself it's the home manager which is like a smart meter uh, you put in mm. um that can actually control those um those wi-fi plugs directly okay and you can then program in um okay if uh if there's surplus solar energy available then always turn it on or pick the best three hours in every day or pick the best three hours in this time slot that it can run, and it needs to be at least two hours in one stretch, like with a washer. Okay. Um, you just you basically turn on the washer, you start the cycle, and then you hit the smart plug and turn it off again. Mm. And then the solar system turns that smart plug on, and the, the washer will finish its cycle. Yeah. It's a bit janky still, but... Yeah, and that there there are actually very expensive washers that you can get that directly integrate that sort of connectivity. <laughs> but it's like to the the power or the, the money you save over the over the mm. time, it's not worth paying like four hundred bucks extra for a washer. <laughs> Sorry, <Yeah>. no. <laughs> I don't really knew, know how much we're gonna use that because that kind of restricts well your normal behavior a little bit, but. Well, at least you can store your surplus energy in, in your battery, but my surplus energy is just, well, sold to the grid at yeah. n not 9. a lot 3? of them. 9.3? Something like yeah. 9 cents a kilowatt hour. And uh, when I need to buy it back from the grid, I pay like 32 cents per kilowatt hour. So Damn. it is a good idea to kind of plan a couple of, well, yeah. electrically intensive tasks to uh, certain times of the day when the sun is out. I mean, the, the automation is nice and all, yeah. um, but uh, what it really works well for is stuff that can just run like uh, the EV charger, um, where it just it's just plugged in all day and you don't really need it to charge at a certain time or you, like in the washer, you don't really need it to charge right then and there. You just have... You just have it plugged in, and whenever it's it's a good time, it, it uses it. Um, but for stuff like washer, dishwasher, those energy-intensive stuff, it's just, okay, you look outside. If the sun's out, you can start. <laughs> That's really what it comes down to. I, I, yeah, I need so, to, Sorry I, if my audio is clipping. Uh, Windows is, is acting up. Yeah. Sorry, guys. I, nothing I can do about that. I, I need to convince my wife that it's uh, worth the effort. But, yeah, we'll see. <laughs> well, at least, at least in our home um, with my parents, we had like uh nachtstrom um yeah the, that's not something that's common anymore it's not that common it's anymore so full tariff yeah um so in the 70s when the house was built they put in um electric heaters everywhere because it was during the time right. of the oil crisis and at that time you always had well those two meters one was for the normal tariff and one was for the discounted tariff at night when all of the 
nuclear power plants had uh, surplus energy that yeah. was sold to you at a cheaper price. And so things like the washer or, well, laundry and or dishwasher, they were always started at night because automatically when the signal came through the grid, um, some, yeah, so some relays were, were switched on and then everything Ooh. started. So home automation in the 70s. Home I didn't, automation. They were doing that. Yeah. Uh, well, my dad's an electrician, so he put something in there. It, it's probably right. really crude, but it was working. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Hopefully in, in a month or two, I'll also get my, um, not dual tariff, but like smart tariff uh, meter. Um, so I don't know if I've talked about this on the podcast before, but in the UK, there's Octopus Energy. And here there's Avatar, um, which is written A-W-A-T-T-A-R. So not like the movie, but like what? Um, and basically, because the price for energy that um, your supplier pays changes every hour, um, they can adjust your tariff on an hourly basis as well. So you get a, um, a preview for the coming day. And it's like, okay, in the morning, it's very expensive. And at, at night, it's very expensive. And, you know, in between that, uh, when there's high sun and high wind and little consumption, maybe you even get down to like negative nine cents uh, per kilowatt hour that you pay plus uh, grid fees, which is about 20 cents here. So instead of paying 25 cents, you pay like 12. Okay. So... That's that's pretty nice, and of course, it can tie into home automation stuff. So just just more stuff to manage, more more <laughs> stuff to play around with. <laughs> yeah, and hopefully save a buck or two. <laughs> Probably not really worth the 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 time you put into that, but I, it's just a fun project, and yeah. it's I well for me, I think it's it's a good feeling using the energy that you really produce on on your own roof. Yeah. Have you looked into the, the Zoe leasing thing they, they're doing now? Um, yes, I have. I haven't contacted the guy in Berlin. I am still postponing that to later this year when our roof renovation right. is, is finished. But I'm still looking into buying an EV maybe later this year or next year. There there are new dealerships um, that are doing similar deals. Okay. So it's not just that one that it's, it's popping up all over the place. So um, for you guys listening or watching, um, in Germany there is a, uh, there's always, or always, there's been an incentive um, for buying a new EV or leasing one of a total of 6,100 euros um, that you get basically paid out in, in cash more or less. Um, and recently, as part of a stimulus package, it's been increased to 9,100 years. So what um, some Peugeot, uh, not Peugeot, I'm getting Peugeot, um, <laughs> what some Renault dealerships have been doing is because the Zoe is a relatively cheap car and they've got relatively cheap lease rates already, they've been um, putting together lease packages where it's like you get the car for free. Essentially, you you don't pay uh, you don't pay a, a deposit upfront. You don't pay monthly lease rates, or at least it comes down to zero because your um, your incentive ends up being exactly what they would charge you. So basically, you can drive a, a Renault Zoe for free for two years, which is pretty pretty amazing. I mean, why not why not make use of that? Yeah. And the Zoe is even though it's a small car, it is pretty nice. I 
well, we had a an intern um, in my department, and she was driving a Zoe for for years now, and her whole family had had more Zoes, and they were really happy with it. So yeah, yeah they have and quite a lot of. It's experience. been updated quite a bit, yeah. Yeah, exactly. It it doesn't look as bad anymore as it used to look earlier. I think I think the originals looked okay. Yeah, at least for the time. Like you, you gotta you gotta consider this is now a what eight year old, ten year old design basically the the old Zoe. Yeah, uh, something like that. So yeah, but you got your new With, EV now. Nah, now you nah, don't. You don't. Nah, nah, nah. So the the E two eight is is made in Tverna, Slovakia, Slovenia. I can never remember. Um, and that plant has been shut down for a bit over, uh, I think, almost two months. Uh, and they're ramping up production now. You can you can actually look at the um, the registration numbers um, based on how many of the incentive packages were actually requested. And I think there's been like forty of my my model E two hundred eight that that have been registered so far. So that's basically you know they, they don't exist yet. <laughs> So yeah, I'll have to see. Hopefully, in the next few months, I'll I'll finally get that. Okay, so you're still driving your old EV? No, no, no that that's gone. That's ah, been that, sold that's to gone. the dealer. Ah, okay, so you're you're currently on petrol again? I'm on diesel. Yeah, on diesel. <laughs> pain pains me to to start up that engine every time, but <laughs> it is what it is. It is what it is. Yeah, yeah. Should we should we keep talking about some more hippie? Uh, green left stuff you know definitely we've we've now got 3d printed steaks and salmon and of course they're completely vegan and um well sustainable and whatever um by the way that, that's not in a, in a sarcastic manner like shout out vegans for actually giving a uh, do we have an explicit tag on this podcast i don't think we do maybe <laughs> yeah um I, I think that the hardcore vegans are actually are, that they're onto something. Um, I'm I'm not strong enough to to do it full yet, but I I like myself a good tofu every now and then. Yeah, well, if yeah. if it's well prepared, why not? Yeah. Have you? Um, well, before we talk about that, have you ever tried one of these um, impossible meat burger things? I've so I've not had the um, the actual impossible burger yeah. yet. Um, I hear in the states that we can actually get them at every McDonald's or Burger King. Yeah, uh, but I think Burger King them. sells them. Yeah, you yeah. can get like every burger as a vegan mm-hmm. option, which is mm-hmm. pretty nice. Yeah, um, I've tried a couple. Um, I don't want to say knockoff versions, but Aldi has like the yeah. Beyond Burger. Yeah, which there's something in there that just t- tastes and smells horrible. <laughs> I. It works if you just use it for like uh, spaghetti sauce, if you do mm. uh, like a, a bolognese uh, sort of thing. But as a burger patty, nah, nah, can't can't do it. <laughs> I'd rather just not have a, a burger like thing instead of eating yeah. that. Um, I think you've tried the you've tried the impossible, right? Um, I'm not sure you if it, it was Lidl. the impossible. Yeah, I got it. I got it at Lidl quite a while ago. I don't know. Re- I don't remember anymore if it was, was the impossible. The, the impossible. Yeah. I think that was it. Yeah, it was okay. It was okay on a burger where you put sauce and other other condiments on there. Um, okay. Just eating it on it on its own. It well, of course, it has a different taste as as meat, but it was quite a nice alternative. And I, I don't know. I, I, I think I would 
buy more of it if if it would be more common around here um but yeah it's always the thing well i i don't buy supermarket meat uh we have really good butchers around right here who have right. locally produced locally sorry for the word slaughter, slaughtered meat um it costs three times it is what it is man it costs three times the price as as normal ones but yeah i just like having a good steak from time to time yeah. Oh, <laughs> uh, I mean, I've 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 pretty much cut out pork and beef from from the stuff I actually buy. Like if if I'm with friends and they're, they're we're out grilling or something, yeah, of course I'm, I'm, I'm I'll eat some pork. But I'm basically beef and and pork is just not something I, I buy anymore. So just chicken or three D printed salmon or three D printed ah, steak yes. in the future. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So. Let's start with the three D yeah. printed steak because I think that that was a that's a bit um, older, well, yeah, a few days older story. So, and I think the one that's actually more down to something that can happen. And both of these stories are like riding that edge really hard of what's actually real and what's fake in these in these pictures they're showing. Mm. Um, so they're both I think the 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 big thing for both of those is they're doing structure. So they've got two different base materials that they're basically extruding as uh as a paste in paste extruders and in the steak you can actually see they've got cartridges labeled fat, blood and then the I think the one to the right is meat. Um <laughs> the, that's just cut off in that picture but um they they're actually adding texture to the oh muscle there we go. Um, fat, blood, and muscle. So they're, they're trying to add a bit of texture because that's something that you don't really get with like a minced meat uh, mm. that's that's like soy-based or whatever. Yep. Um, and that's something that, that 3D printing, I guess, can be used for. Like, I, I can see it also just being extruded yep. uh, with a texture. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I I think we have already talked about that in in the last podcast. But one of the th things that you could do with such an well extruder, if you have, well, you you kind of orient the material by the printing process. You can not really simulate like muscle fibers, but at least the material has, or the the artificial meat is is kind of oriented in, in your printing direction, which might add a little bit more of the texture you're used to. Uh, yeah, of course, the question is always, couldn't you do that at a larger scale in a pretty big extrusion machine? Yeah, maybe. Yeah. But um, if the 3D printing works out, maybe this could be um, the reason why a bigger manufacturer decides to invest in a meat extrusion machine, which adds artificial fat and fibers is there, and blood into is there a term for um non-meat meat alternatives because calling this meat i think is is doing a bunch of things at this service yeah. because it's not it's well, it's, the way I understand it, this is not actual just minced meat pressed hmm. into new shape. This is a, a vegan alternative. Yeah. Uh, yeah, high in protein, being plant-based, no cholesterol. Coconut so. fat. <clears throat> this stuff always reminds me, or uh, even even taking a look at, at the pictures, 
uh, reminds me of those unlimited long um, artificial eggs. eggs. Yeah. Yes. You have yeah. on sandwiches. <laughs> oh God. <laughs> why do Why do those slices of eggs on the sandwich on sandwiches usually always look totally the same? Yeah, because they're not real eggs. Well, they have been real they're, eggs, but they were separated yeah. before it then extruded into a like one kilometer long sausage of egg that can yeah. then be sliced again and that's that's pretty much the same that is happening right here as well oh well, except that this isn't real uh, animal-based product <laughs> you're right yeah yeah uh, what, what i'm just thinking about uh, looking at the the picture that's like it's made to resemble its meaty counterpart yeah. um what if you could just because i i see the point with extrusion but what if you could just like um do a happy 30th birthday steak that just has the, the fat areas in that shape. Well, that, that's uh, industry 4.0 individualization of products. Uh, yeah. Yeah, you could start an online service printing... Have your happy kid's face in there or something. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we, we can we can go as deep as you want here. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, we, yeah, we'll see. It it does, sorry, <clears throat> it does resemble more a piece of meat as the substitutes that we currently see out there. And for many, not choosing those substitutes for eating is is also a reason of of looks and the well the texture you have in in your mouth and things like that. And maybe we can get just one step closer to really having a perfectly good substitute the question is always do we need a perfect substitute for meat that yes. is plant-based it's just like the similar thing as alcohol-free beer that we have around here or or weizen beer wheat right. beer <laughs> where does yeah. does this beverage need to taste exactly the same as normal beer or is it just a different kind of drink Yeah, the, the the one thing I was going to bring up is like milk substitutes. Um, yeah. I guess not technically called milk, at least here in, in the EU. Um, so just like not buying beef and pork, I've also switched away from, from buying milk, as in like actual cattle milk uh, or cow milk. Um, and I actually like the alternatives better. Um, so I get the uh, oat and almond milk from Aldi. Um, and I actually prefer that for just, you know, mixing into cereal. Um, why can't we just, like, if you look at, at steak and the, the salmon we're going to talk about in a second, why can't, you, can't we just make the, the dopest, like, the burger patty that doesn't have to resemble beef? Yeah. Like, wh wh why can't we just focus on that? Just make something that actually tastes and, and, and tastes good and, and has a nice texture and try not to resemble the real thing um i think that that would, that would be a, a, a more achievable and maybe mm. even better goal in the end yeah maybe the reason is because i don't know how many are well still not vegetarians or vegans and i would guess that's at least 80 percent germany it's like 87 or something okay so there is quite a big market when you try to convince meat eaters to become a meat substitute eater. <laughs> uh, there 
I don't know, maybe using the something that resembles meat might make that step easier. True, true. But but then again, if you if you don't get it perfectly right, you enter that uncanny valley yeah. where it's like you're expecting beef, yeah. but you're not getting it, and then it's like, well, this sucks. This yeah. isn't what I what I wanted, and and that's the end of that story. Yeah. So either you so. make it really perfect, or you take a well a step away from the product that you know that it's different, but it still tastes good. Yeah. Yeah. Un uncanny valley. That's that's a. Per perfect perfect word for that <laughs> yeah. Yeah. again that, that's that's why why i actually like the uh oat milk better than than milk because it's not it's not trying to be milk it's just uh something that works better with uh with cereal but it still looks the same kind of the same yeah it's still a milky white liquid but i guess mm. that just that's just what works with uh with cereal yeah i don't know so, yeah, we'll we'll see when we will, we'll see when uh, that's going to be released in supermarkets or if it's just some posh restaurants where you can buy that. <laughs> we will see. Yeah, hopefully it's not. All right, nah, I'm I'm not I'm not gonna go there. Okay. Um, so yeah, the the other one is uh, the 3D printed salmon, which I. I I don't know if it's the same thing. Uh, it's probably very much the same thing, but it's way more um, uh, obscure and undescript. They've got a photo of a piece of salmon under an extruder, which is, I guess, supposed to suggest that this is a printed piece of salmon. But that's a, I mean, that's a real piece of salmon. Mm -hmm. You can't tell me that's a printed piece. Uh, EU-backed AM research project. They really don't have anything to show yet, but I guess it's newsworthy for, I guess for the reason that uh, yeah, just a few days earlier we saw the steak, and now we get the salmon. But the salmon really, I have. There's nothing to talk about there, right? Yeah. Well, m most most fish. most popular fish. So when you have meat, why not also fish? We'll see. Would like to try that at some point <laughs> i would also be interested to to try uh some uh artificially grown meat oh lab meat lab yeah. meat <laughs> but that's not lab meat that's uh, that's a vegan substitute what we have been talking about here yes 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 but can we talk about lab meat for a second <laughs> <laughs> i take an actual animal cells without the brain and without the suffering and just mm. you know growing it in a in a plastic bag somewhere yeah. i think that sounds very attractive yeah <laughs> uh, that's that's like the same mindset of oh yeah you know grinding up um the crickets and, and putting those into a patty that that also sounds attractive yeah. I, I wouldn't mind that i wouldn't mi well i wouldn't mind that either and i have tried crickets in the past but that would still involve killing animals and even though crickets True. might be a pest um from time to time uh, yeah, we still need to like kill them, grind them up. Sure. So I, I mean, from my perspective, just just uh, you know, plastic bag meat. <laughs> <laughs> so, sounds sounds a lot better on a lot of on a lot of fronts there. So. <laughs> yeah, we'll see. Gonna try it that out maybe at some point in the future. Well, maybe yeah. form, form Labs is really happening this year. Maybe they have three. Oh printed. God. <laughs> 
<laughs> oh god that, i mean that, that's an experiment uh, on its on its own maybe let's just talk about that for a second so i think yes the form next expo here in germany which is the biggest 3d printing expo in the world am i right there at least one of the biggest I, ones so, something along those lines yeah yeah i think this is still the only expo no sorry tct asia was last week uh this week Last so that, that actually happened as a, as a physical in-person I, expo? I'm quite sure that happened because I've seen posts of Polymaker um, during the last couple of days. But at, at least in, let's say, the Western world, I think Formnext is still the only expo that wasn't canceled so far. And they still have the plan to um, do that, I think, this year again in November. But I'm I would be quite hesitant to go there even though i have been there for the last four or five years i don't know what about you yeah I've, i mean i've posted about this on on twitter briefly but uh, when i saw that they were announcing yes it's gonna happen in person uh they, so the thing is that they said they were going to have extra precautions and wider aisles <laughs> and uh less people there but It is still a very international audience that's going to come together. And knowing trade shows, it is still going to be crowded, um, especially around the more popular booth. mm. booths. Booths. <laughs> um, I don't know. So, and the so, thing is that, that people all over the world like, come there. So there is a potential yeah. risk that you have just somebody in there who... Yeah. Might be contagious. So if, if it isn't perfectly obvious, we, we're talking about uh, you know this being potentially a new COVID nineteen super spread event. Um, just to be very clear here, if it if it is not already, um, I don't know. We'll have to see what the situation is um, when the show actually happens. Yeah. Like if we're in the middle of wave two, like pff, no way. Uh, if they're permitting international guests from areas that are you know not keeping it under control right now uh you know i would be way more hesitant uh to to attend than if it was like okay everything's still cool everything like right now it feels very calm in germany like we've got this under control more or less um right now i would probably go okay if it was a a a, a limited audience if you know i'm obviously i'm gonna walk the, the aisles with the masks uh with a mask on um and i think that's if if everyone is required to wear one still at that point which i think they will be um and that would make me feel a bit better about it but yeah mm. i don't know we'll, we'll just have to see you know what exactly they do when it happens what the situation is um and like people who are just like oh dude it's your job as a journalist to attend and to cover it i'm like dude go go explicit word yourself uh you're not the one to decide you know what i risk my health and the the health of the people around me for yeah. so yeah we'll see uh tct asia happened yeah i i think i just yeah, posted the link into the show notes it happened last week and it looked yeah quite normal let's put it that way you you, you can see people there without masks and lots of Other ones with masks, which looks totally usual for for Asia. Yeah. Also, just the the entire um, social 
uh, how do you call it? Just the fact that, that people are just used to wearing masks mm. in, uh, in the Asian countries probably helped them a lot uh, in, in getting it under control from the start. So now they can go back to normal a bit quicker. Yep. All right. Yeah. Um, so we shall see. We shall see. Um, maybe, maybe let's stay in Asia and uh, put that topic right here as the next one on our list. Um, quite interesting. Well, press release by Creality, I think last week or something like that. Creality claims to have shipped half a million printers in April. May. 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 Close enough. Sorry, May. Uh, which is an insanely big number. And they're saying that they have shipped half a million printers last year, 2019. In all of 2019. In all of 2019. Yeah. And in just one month in May this year, 2020, they have shipped another half a million printers, which is mind-blowing. And I'm which asked, definitely for that month makes makes them the biggest 3D printer manufacturer in the world. Yeah. Um, if not just with their overall numbers already, they're already at that spot. Yeah. yeah. Go ahead. <laughs> what I have been asking myself, who got all the affiliate money? <laughs> Because I didn't get it. <laughs> no. Uh, sorry, just kidding. Uh, well, yeah, yeah. Uh, hmm. <laughs> Um, so we have this, we have been discussing about um, that before recording and, and asked ourselves, okay, have that been backlogged printer that weren't able to be shipped out? Because um, most of the, the Ender printers were out of stock for quite a while at the beginning of this year. And maybe they just uh, figured out how to get their... Um, production chain in order again and uh, in that month they were really able to yeah crank out this big amount of printers which is yeah insane yeah so th they've also got some numbers in this press release um, that states how many orders they're receiving um, so they're saying in April um, they received orders for a total amount of 160 thousand 3d printers during the first half of the month so that doesn't quite add up to half a million printers in a month um, half a million printers ordered in a month um, that's i mean that's still 320,000, which is a lot mm -hmm. um, but it's roughly half as many so i think what's what's going on here is just a uh, first of all asia has has been earlier on the entire covid shutdown and, and infection curve so Asia went into a really hard, or China at least, went into a pretty hard shutdown during a while, and then they were able to open back up because they had very few uh, new reported cases. Um, so what I'm seeing here is they, Creality had orders piling up during that shutdown. Um, they weren't able to produce, they weren't able to get the parts in the amount or in the volume that they needed. And then in May, they finally got all the parts in and they were able to fill all those backlogs. Mm. And during that month, they were able to to ship all those printers out. Um, But man, half a million yeah. printers! I don't. Well, It's, I don't have any numbers. How many printers Prusa is usually shipping? Less. Well, less. Way less. Yeah. 
Um, I, I think it's around one tenth of that. Um, well, I'm not going to Google it because that's going to be horrible to uh, <laughs> for for listeners. Yeah. Um, yeah, so obviously that that is a lot of printers. The question is, is that just Creality brand printers? Is is uh, Creality actually doing OEM work um, for others too, where it's a, a white label machine? Uh. Well, I'm not 100% sure because I have seen printers from, I think, Sane Smart and whatever those other companies are called, which like 100% resemble Creality printers and are just called Sane Smart Endo 3 or something like that. Well, I mean, there are like Amazon sellers, sellers, Amazon, Amazon sellers that are just selling. Okay, this is the Shenwen Fing in the three. This is the Saint Smart in the three. This is the uh, Robo Leaks in the three, and it's really just they're reselling it as their brand, mm. um, and it is just reality mm. in the three. It would be interesting to know if they really do other white label 3d printers for for other companies um i don't know i just don't know um but i i don't know well if if they have the production facilities and the capacities it would make sense to do something like that but the other printers that you're usually well getting from other companies they, I'd say they mostly look distinctively different, and I would, I would almost doubt that they come from the same plant. But it's always hard to I say. I mean, they all look like Ender threes now. They all look Ender threes <laughs> on the outside, but if you dig deeper, yeah, they are definitely manufactured Obviously, yeah. differently. So, um, yeah, I, I think this just goes to prove that. Uh, you know, 3D printing is not dying down um, during lockdowns. In fact, there is, if anything, there is an uptick in uh, interest in 3D printing, mm. in uh, well, in 3D printed sales, obviously, as well. Um, yeah, I've gotten comments on, on YouTube from people who knew nothing, basically, and they were like, ah, what, why are you still making videos about basic stuff? Like, nobody cares about 3D printing anymore in this pandemic. Like, nobody's buying printers. Oh. <laughs> We've just been proven wrong. Yeah. You've just been proven wrong. Um, uh, it would be interesting to see if the amount of printers that are sold is is dying down in the next months just a little bit because, well, during the last months, people often had more spare time. There was the demand, or I think many bought printers for 3D printing personal protective equipment. And if the market is now at least stagnating a little bit, and I even have heard from filament manufacturers that the amount of filament that was sold over the last month has just risen like crazy. When we've had a a PLA shortage yeah. uh, on top of that. There's the question if less PLA was produced due to the pandemic or if more was sold in that. Maybe both. A lot of things things coming together. Yeah. So, yeah, quite impressive. <laughs> for sure, for sure, yeah. <laughs> it's going to be interesting to see if, uh, you know, in the coming months, people will actually stop 
buying 3D printers or, or stop being interested in them uh, because, well, it, it costs money. And with uh, unemployment rates in, in some countries being as high as, what, 15%, 20% uh, from one month to the next, uh, I, I can see how people would, uh, you know, maybe not invest in a, in a hobby that's, you know, it's going to cost them easily a couple hundred bucks and then you don't know how much in, in upgrades or in maintenance uh, it's going to add on. We will see. We will see. All right. Maybe let's stay with Creality for another second. So I recently released a video on Creality's new CR6SE 3D printer, which is the big Kickstarter printer that gathered more than 4 million US dollars on Kickstarter. Yeah. Um, yeah. And... One of the things that I found really interesting and I really like to see on one of those machines was the strain gauge leveling sensor. So where the nozzle physically touches the print bed, um, deforms a part in, in the print head and that deformation is sensed by a strain gauge and therefore it knows that it touched the bed. Um, has the advantages that you directly measure the height of your bed and not at a different location with a different probe or something like that. So it makes things a bit easier, but also has some other problems. But anyways, the thing is that somebody wrote me an email um, that there is a patent from a German company called uh, Konrad Electronics, more or less the biggest German um, electronics reseller that there is a patent on yeah a leveling sensor using string gauges which which was really interesting that i wasn't aware of that patent and the question that i have is if that could be affecting the well selling that specific 3d printer here here in germany or here in the eu i think it's only um, they only have applied for that in the EU. Let me check that again. Yeah, I think it's a European patent. EP. Yeah. Looks like it, yeah. Um, so, yeah, this is from 2013, 2014, um, that area. Wait, but priority application filed in 2014 and then granted in 2018 and published in 2018. That's a B1. Okay, so that's that's a that's a revision on that patent. So expiration is going to be 2034. <laughs> um, yeah, 3D printing and patents, man. It's uh, it's a it's a long lasting hate story. Um, you guys are probably all familiar with the like the fundamental 3D printing FDM patent that expired in 2000 and something, 2008 ish. Which then kicked off uh, Adrian Boyer's team, uh, you know, thinking, hey, we can do this now. We don't have to worry about patents now. And, <laughs> and basically kicked off this entire 3D printing thing. Uh, yeah, so does this restrict Creality from well, selling a printer with that feature in the EU? Probably. Could be Probably. If, uh, if, yeah, Konrad Electronics is really using that to, well, if they're really defending their patent um sometimes patent applications are for defensive purposes so you apply for a patent but 
well, patent is expensive, uh, but still you apply for a patent that nobody else can patent it. And um, if you don't really enforce well, that, that, but you could that's use the, the noble idea behind patents. That's the noble like, idea. Yeah. Um, so the, the way I've been explained patents is basically you know you you try to patent everything you try to patent the uh the mundane the obvious the pre-existing stuff and you just try to have as many patents as possible and when somebody comes at you and is like hey you're infringing on our patent you say okay well see you have uh, 380 patents on your stuff we have 420 um let's just settle this let's just call it even um i'm not going to sue you you're not going to sue me and that's that's going to be the end of that story um so the the individual patent whether that's valid whether that's um you know even something that's that's patentable whether there's prior prior art prior um invention happening there um that at some point just becomes irrelevant yeah. um you know just the the pure idea of okay maybe this um uh what's the name this idea of uh doing leveling on a 3d printer bed with a strain gauge maybe that's been discussed in the rep forums before this thing was even applied uh, applied for um which would invalidate the entirety of that patent um or at least that the part that was explicitly released before that but at some point, it just doesn't matter because these patents at time of application aren't checked to the point where it's like, okay, we're making sure there is no prior art. It's just nobody has complained that there is prior art. Hmm. Because as I understand, it, the patent office doesn't actually do much checking. It just publishes a preprint and, and is like, okay, if anyone you know claims prior art on this, we'll hmm. look into this. But if nobody says anything, it's going to be fine. Yeah. So... so. Well, and that would also maybe influence Ultimaker with their PSO electric leveling system. Though I'm not sure if that's also covered in the patent. And also the smart effector that um, Duet is, for example, yeah. selling. In 3D. So, yeah, the smart effector is using string gauges directly. Yeah. Um, Ultimaker, like I said, uses a PSO element, which is... So they're, they're saying a, a Kraftmesseinrichtung. Yeah. So a force measuring device, which I guess technically a, a piezo um, is just doing that. It is sensing a force and outputting an electrical signal. So it is a force measuring device in, in a sense. And yeah, that that force sensing, uh, force sensing or measuring device is just one of the uh, details that are being patented. Mm. So just. You know, this apparatus with X, Y, wherein it uses a force measuring device. So if it's not using a force, force uh, then all the other, oops, sorry, then all the other bits are still valid. Mm. Um, I don't know, man, patents. Uh, it's just, it, like him. yeah, it's just interesting. Well, I was just c quite excited that that popped up. And yeah, as I said, I, I yeah. thought about if that would influence the sale of, that printer and well um Con conrad electronics they are a electronics reseller but they also have their rank four series of yeah. 3d printers so they do also have at least a bit of interest in that market and uh protecting their own um developments yeah so conrad uh overall 
I don't have the impression that they're the most noble company out there. Um, so, um, Vaterot, who you guys mm. might be familiar with uh, as the, I guess the, the company, I mean, they're a pretty small company, um, that came up with the Trinamic Silent Step Sticks that have, you know, Trinamic drivers are now used in so many printers. Um, so, they designed the Silent Step Sticks um, which is the size module. And, you know, a bit after they released their, their original design, of course, open source, all of that, uh, Conrad came out and basically cloned them and sold them under their own brand. Uh, and then people were coming to Vaterod saying, hey, this thing isn't working properly. Um, and turns out, well, they bought the fake silent step stick from Conrad. Uh, Conrad failed to disclose that this is not a genuine product and this is instead, or even failed to disclose that this is based on the Vaterod silent step stick and just made their own thing based on the plans and sold it, you know, basically creating the impression that this was a Vaterod silent step stick. So, I, I, I mean, that's a, that's a pretty dick move. Um, and yeah, it, it come, it came back to Vaterot where it's like, your, your stuff doesn't work, but it was just Conrad doing a shitty clone. Um, and Vaterot got them to stop selling those for a bit. And then they came right back and started selling them again. Okay. So, you know, being, being an electronics retailer, um, kind of, I guess, gives you special rights because like, who's going to fight you? Who's going to take you to court? Uh, you know, who's not going to be bankrupt after taking you to court mm-hmm. and losing potentially? Yeah, <laughs> so that's that's Conrad. Um, not a fan, okay, of them in general. But um, what I guess it? if if you need if you need a resistor for two bucks, you can go into the store and buy it. That's that's the advantage they have. <laughs> um, when I was a small boy, I was always happy to browse through their catalogs for for hours and sure, hours. Sure, <laughs> sure, yeah. Those are the fond memories of Conrad that I have. Yeah, same. But if if you look back on it, their stuff was always like ridiculously expensive. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and staying on the topic of patents and all that, uh, the other thing that, that came to my mind is where, where there is actual pre-existing patentage um, is the feed belt topic uh, that black belt uses and the the white knight printers. Um, where it's instead of having a bed on a printer, it's a continuous feed belt that um, pushes prints out. Now, I'm just realizing that there is a reason that they that they can get around it. So um, as a background on that, um, there is a patent by MakerBot, now Stratasys, um, that patented that, uh, that thingomatic feed belt. Um, where it was the Cupcake CNC, the original 3D printer that had like a tiny little belt on it, um, instead of a bed that would just eject prints out the mm-hmm. front. I think it was like 8 by 8 centimeters of usable build area. Um, which, honestly, for a, for a printer that empties itself, I think is, is plenty. But still, um, they patented that. And now the reason why you see the Black Belt and the White Knight printer actually having that tilted uh, tool head is because that doesn't infringe on the patent, supposedly. Um, because it's not a it's not a Cartesian square mm. machine. It is actually angled, and that creates some issues in the processing of parts. But also, it it creates some new opportunities, and it doesn't infringe on the patent. The way I understand it, again, I'm not a lawyer. I've not looked into this in full detail. <laughs> 
But if um, if you would have a Cartier, well, I think one of the advantages of, for example, the White Knights uh, 3D printer or Black Belt or however they're called is that you can really do continuous 3D printing. You can yeah. print a five meter long bastard sword. <laughs> yes. Um, and that can only be done if you don't have this Cartesian system uh, because otherwise you would be kind of limited by the build area then you jack the part and you, then you start with a new one I, I mean I guess you could still do it um, because a, a 3D printed nozzle is still still has that um, that Taper, angle up yeah. top so if you just take your Cartesian layers and you print a, a taller layer here and then you just step it down and you split your, your parts into basically like little columns yeah. where you print a tall one up front and then you just step it down and, and the printer just always goes along the Z or, or just has incremental Z axis. Yeah. You get what I'm yeah. getting at? Yeah. So I guess you could do that. You could still do that. Yeah. The way I understand it, it's just a necessity to work around. Well, but and still... Even though it's probably something that services could go after, they they are not. It doesn't look like they're interfering there. No. Yet. Yet. <laughs> well, there are more and more companies popping up with those belt three D printers, and even Creality has shown of a belt three D printer, which might become way more popular in the future because they're able to provide those printers at a well, lower price point. I'm, I'm quite excited um, that they are also going into that direction, but that could call Stratasys to action because then there is, well, a market there. There is a big company behind that you would be able to sue. And yeah, for the smaller ones, White Knight and Black Belt, they're startups at the moment. There's not that much competition i think you currently have yeah and as as far as i'm aware stratuses are not actually using that patent right now so they they don't have a belt printer that's being sold um and the make about thingomatic doesn't exist anymore yeah so um what, what i'm really excited about is is what uh brook drum uh comes up with or, or ends up releasing because uh printabot obviously um printabot's gone out of business brook has retained the rights to the printabot brand um and he's been working on the printer belt um again so i think that's going to be his first product again after um you know getting himself and the I don't think it's the same company anymore. But after getting himself back on his feet, uh, I think that's the first thing he's going to be releasing as some sort of a product. Cool. Yeah. Printer belt. Sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. All right. Shall we continue to the next topic? Yes. I mean, we, we could we could keep ranting about patents, but... Um, <laughs> Since we're not lawyers, it's it's some yeah. of it is always speculation. Just as a disclaimer, obviously, and we—I gotta say—I lack the brain power of actually working through a patent and understanding every little bit and f understanding every little implication that the way the sentence has been laid out has. I think because you that is can't be an yeah. engineer to properly understand patents because yeah. this some things maybe don't really make sense and are just yeah. 
intentionally made more complicated even though the lawyer is saying no that's the way how it is really clear in the end yeah. i don't know uh, i just hate worries, it man anyways uh print settings and printers print settings tuning uh you've got the 3d optimizer.com in here yep um so I wanted to ask you if you have ever worked with services or specific parts or G-codes to tune in specific settings of your 3D printer. I know that in your Win series, you've yes. been printing like three benches at three different temperatures. I think that's already going into that direction. But there have been, um, especially 3D Optimizer, a service been popping up that have a wizard that guide you through the process of setting up a filament and the 3d printer so yeah so you've basically summed it up yeah i've, I've been using handcrafted g-code for um optimizing the or, or finding a set of print settings that works for a filament during philween but i've not been using like a full-on assisted uh, optimizer thing like the 3d optimizer or you've linked another one uh which we're going to talk about in a second i guess yeah i've not used those yeah um and yeah as i said i have been using 3 optimizer in in the last couple of weeks a little bit it's a paid service i still have i think they somehow increased the duration of the free trial because not that many were using it i don't know what really the reason behind that is but um yeah it's it's a pretty interesting service so you um set up a material in there you specify the i think the broad range of temperatures and other settings that are interesting for that material and then um you are guided through I think it's something like a 10-step process where in each step you print or you download a G-code, which is especially designed for the settings you put in there at first, print it out, and then judge which of the parts that were printed looks the best. And then those settings are then used for the next test again, and you are basically guided to... Yeah, setting up a whole um, um, a whole profile in the end and it spits you out um, printing temperatures, fan settings, retraction speeds, retraction lengths um, and everything that is usually important for a, a, yeah, a profile and it is guided and sometimes helps you set up materials that you're not that well commonly uh, using which is cool but yeah. It is, I don't know, did you check how much the subscription is? Uh, it's five bucks per week. F okay. Uh, or 14 bucks per month or 49 bucks per month if you're a business. Yeah. And in the end, you can download um, yeah, settings for Simplify 3D, Prusa, Slicer, and Cura. Interesting that it doesn't support, I just lost my window, there we go, that it doesn't support the, the good old uh, SlickTR. So it, it seems like Prusa Slicer is solidly super replacing that. Yeah. Replacing that. Yeah. So. Um, so so how does that work? Um, you you basically you upload. Ba what what do, what do you start with? Well, basically in the beginning you tell the wizard: Are you looking for good print quality, or are you looking for 
better strength. Well, let's let me just sign in for a second. Let's see if your subscription has expired. Huh? Well, there you go. <laughs> uh, you you basically select <clears throat> what the aim of the of, of the optimization is. Do you want to have better print results or better strengths? Even though I don't know how they judge better strength in the setup process, but I usually I have done it so far for visual quality. Right. You um, tell it your well printer or printer size and what material you're using, and then you go through, um, for example, in the first step, uh, printing temperatures. You say, okay, the suggested printed printing temperature is between 230 and 260 degrees Celsius. And then it prints specific models in that range. They don't take a lot of time to print. They're pretty flat. And then you get kind of a matrix of print results out. There are some pretty pictures on, on their website. And you choose the one that looks the best. And then you go to the next setting. And you are not only tuning right. one setting at a time. So, for example, for for printing temperature you test printing temperature and printing speed and which combination of those of those two is seems to be the best for the material right so you you always start from scratch you don't start with a uh, a profile that you say is is okay for you instead you really have a bone stock profile that you did you start with exactly and okay. you're not putting any any STL models or something like that in your slicer. They pre-compile G-code for you. And you download that, you put it on an SD card and then just print it out. It didn't always work perfectly for me and I had to tinker with the G-code from time to time. But all in all, it was an interesting process if you're not 100% sure which setting is now causing me problems or if you just want to know could i still tune my retraction settings a little bit more to get less strings on my print and stuff like that so you can try it 3d optimizer yeah. but then there is also um Carl, Carl wrote me an email and Carl wrote um, a software on his own, which is used for calibration, calibrating retraction speed and retraction length, which is also just a really simple um, graphical user interface where you put in general printing settings and it gives you a G-code in the end that you print out and then you have a tower and judge which section of the tower looks the best and that um, and that should be the perfect settings for your retraction speed and your retraction length. I haven't tried out Carl's program yet, but it also looks quite usable. And I really like the idea about a structured approach, like a design of experiments approach for tuning and settings, because tuning one parameter at a time often doesn't, well, lead you to the perfect result. Yeah. Now, looking at the at the tester doing and the like the way it's laid out, it doesn't seem like a particularly complex uh, system to set up. Like, I I feel like somebody with a bit of programming experience could like set this entire thing up in, in like two days. Um, of course, three D optimizer, I guess, is the first one who's doing this. But I'm I'm surely expecting uh, that there are going to be others that maybe even publish this as an open source Python script or something. But for the time being, we have we have 3D uh, mm. optimizer. Um, so 
yeah, in the end, you, you actually get a profile for your slicer. Is that something um, that you have to tune for the slicer? Like if you say, I want to tune for, say, Cura, um, you actually get test prints that are sliced in Cura, or is it just a, a generic set of of prints that he gets um, where a few parameters have changed it's, and it's, it's basically it's, the same g-code it's very generic yeah it's it's definitely the same uh, g-code and in the end they just put those settings into a um, cura profile or into a prusa slicer profile so it, it's okay. not slicer okay. specific so um, maybe your results will vary a little bit in the end but i think you're already pretty close and maybe get an understanding what parameter could influence my printing quality and this is yeah. also something that you could just use to learn and i have for example been using that for tuning in uh, bridging settings for polycarbonate for example because i my bridges always looked horrible and i thought yeah why not try it out and see if it works for for um for my polycarbonate and um for example you tune the fan setting for bridges and the flow ratio for bridges you could definitely set that up all by yourself but this is just straightforward and yeah if you do all the tests it basically covers more or less all of the settings that are necessary for a printing profile yeah um and it's i mean when you're printing how many are these 25 so 36 a lot of prints per plate um, I mean, you could do that. You could surely do that manually, where you just um, you know print a bunch of test files. You change one setting. Mm. You, you print um, and just you know you print at 200, 210, 220 degrees. Um, but when you have thirty of those tests in one plate, mm. like that's going to be really tedious to do manually. Mm. Like, again, you could mm. do it manually, but it's just impractical. Yeah. And well, this is a stepwise process. You, so you start tuning in a, a specific set of parameters and then with those parameters, you go to the next um, setting because the yeah. amount of parameters you are having, if you would do a full factorial design of experiments analysis, you would need probably millions of test samples to, to, to find the perfect one. And this stepwise approach helps you to reduce the number of of variables from uh, test to test and yeah those are 12 tests in the end you do them one after the other i never did the whole set i just picked out a couple which were interesting oh. for me okay so you, you can't actually do just the ones that you think you need yeah um it might have been better to do all of them but it i think it's it might be convenient for some. Um, it's I don't really like that it's a paid process, uh, a paid service. But on the other hand, um, why spend like days of tuning in your settings if you could also just yeah pay five dollars and can use their service for a week and dial in your new material. And um, if you use the free trial. I think you can also, yeah, new sets. You can use the service for seven days with all of the tests. And, and I think afterwards you can just test three or I don't know. Visual quality target app. So I'm, I'm reading that as the, um, the paid options also give you um, testing for strength yeah. or optimization for strength. Yeah. As I said, I right. don't know how they would judge that, but. Maybe I maybe I need to thoroughly try it out at some point. 
but yeah. that's just it. Hold on. I, I, I got to vent these, these headphones open because these are way too tight. These are starting to hurt my ears here. Ah. Oh, way too loose now. Goddamn cheap super looks. Uh, I should I should get some some nice. Uh... I, I, oh, I, I no, can I can always recommend my Bose QC twenty fives. Yeah, I mean I've, I've got the Sony's, um, the one thousand XM three, but I, I do like my Biodynamics that I'm using for editing. Yeah, I should just get a yeah. new pair for these. Yeah, so three um, D optimizer, give it a try uh, if you want to use a more open source and and free alternative um check out carl johnson's site also linked down in the description where he has set up one of those tests for calibrating your rejection settings um i also have i think one material i i really want to try it out and i will probably do that uh, the next days but yeah it looks really cool and I, I I think it's worth using because you have this like guided or at least um, structured approach to tune in settings yeah. and you don't miss anything yeah. I mean I, I would say that maybe this tuning is the job of maybe the printer manufacturer or the filament manufacturer if it's like specialty mm. stuff but we're not there yet we, we don't have perfect profiles for every printer um yeah i mean i i keep stressing that good profiles with a printer are kind of super important but if you don't have them you know you can always use the uh use services like that and mm. maybe spend spend a bit more in the long run um but you're still gonna get good prints well and that's as i said a learning opportunity to just learn what settings could influence uh the results yeah. in the end um yeah and as you just <laughs> said uh, Buying PLA, even though it seems like that they're using the same base resin for extruding the material, can sometimes lead to really hugely different results due to the uh, pigments that they're using, due to the amount of moisture that they're using. Maybe they are compounding the material with their own 11 herbs and spices. I don't know, (laughs) but it can be important. Yeah, so sometimes a closed filament system makes sense if you don't want to be bothered with us setting up that stuff and for example prusa makes it kind of cheap to if you have one of their printers also by the prusa mint it works perfectly from my experience sorry for being a shill again yeah i mean i'm the guy who has like 30 boxes of prusa mint behind me right now so (laughs) Yeah. No. I, well, I uh, I printed with their PC blend two or three days ago for the first time. Their new polycarbonate material or yep. polycarbonate blend, and took the material out of the box, put it on the printer, used their profile, and the result was. It been great. Uh, was like perfect, and that's just nice. So you, you're printing that on a Prusa machine. I'm printing that on a Prusa machine. I'm guessing. Yeah. yeah. So sometimes it's worth it. Sometimes people don't want to um, spend that amount of money. But the Prusa Mints, they are similarly priced. itself is is actually comparatively cheap. And it's full one kilogram spools. Um, It's not 800 grams. So pretty well priced. What I I did notice is that the the more technical materials, PC and ASA, do have a lot more diameter deviation um, than the PLA. Okay. Uh, might just be different settings on the extrusion lines, but 
I mean, it's still not bad. It, this uh, urban gray that I just grabbed is a plus minus 0.023 millimeters. Mm. Um, and I think the best one that I have might actually be the Miss Pink. It's like 0.008 millimeters. <laughs> uh, I've, so, I've been printing quite a lot of test samples uh, in the past weeks and um, most of the test samples were printed with generic Hobby King and um, Spoolworks filament. And then I printed... A generic Spoolworks, yeah. The premium yeah. E3D stuff. Yeah. Well, uh, yeah, well. Um, but the thing that I noticed, because I was measuring all of the samples, the deviation in the dimensions of the samples was hugely varying with the other brands of materials and the stuff that I have printed with the uh, the PC blend, they were basically all spot on, which was which is really nice for Chill. me. Chill, yeah, <laughs> yeah. God damn it! Why why do they keep making good products? <laughs> well, I'm, I'm still not a Prusa affiliate, so uh, I, I I can't be a real shill because yeah, you, you're not. Yeah. Oh, you're just saying that that they're paying you behind the scenes. Yeah, definitely. Well, yeah. I, I gotta yeah. say, I gotta say that uh, Mikolas uh, sent me those rolls of PC blend for me to play around with. Yeah. Ah, there, there we go. Okay. Yeah, paid by paid by. At least I disclosed my 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 business relationship. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. Enough of that for the moment. Um, yeah, if you guys need to tune yeah. in your materials, check out 3D Optimizer and Carl's um, uh, rejection calibration program that he did. Pretty cool. All right, let's continue with questions, shall we? Yes. TS3D Prince um, has pointed us towards a um, 3D support interface approach. And I've, I think I've seen this before being shared. Um, that's... Sketa Smeta is, is sharing on, on YouTube um, where he basically uses a regular FDM toolhead. This is a Mark something, Mark II uh, or whatever, or a clone, I don't know. Um, and he then paints on a black marker. Well, he, he paints the top of, of the support material with a black marker. So there's now a thin, a very thin coating of that marker ink on there and apparently that gives him a perfect release for those support and, and interface layers very nice approach definitely um yeah you've you've got the tool changer you're you're the one to, to try this out <laughs> with a well yeah it, it could be working uh i could just put a a pen on one of the tool heads uh pretty good idea would would save me working with the pva material or other breakaway support um i think it's also a really cool approach and does enable you to print really nicely releasing supports just with a single extruder printer uh the thing again kind of similar to um non uh uh the thing again is that the implementation in software is is the ah, is yes. the problem. Non-planar 3D printing. That's what I was ah, looking there for. You go. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So uh, he has linked 
an article that he wrote in the Prusa forums. And he said that currently the G code is still like hands tailored that at, well, on the height where the support is finished, um, he uses the, um, the pen to draw on the, the interface layer. Um, yeah. If you could somehow fool your slicer to um well with a multi-material approach to to use the pen i think that could be a workaround or maybe this could be really something that could be implemented in either prusa slice or cure or some other slice on the future i i think it's a really neat approach and with um simple tools um could add value to yeah the 3d printing process as it is uh today and Imagine companies selling horribly expensive support pens with special ink in there for good release between support material and the print itself. Yeah, the, the consumables, that's that's what you get you what they get you with. Um <laughs> yeah, but I, I really like the approach of just using a marker. Yeah. Of just having common household items. Um and apparently these these working really well. Now there's probably a, you know implications to um well maybe it, it doesn't stick as well as you'd want to for some prints sure um maybe there's there's better pens to use different pens but that's all down to being able to try it out at some point um I guess as you're saying yeah that the software supports needs to be there the question is who would implement something like this um when they don't have a printer to well to to support it with because now the pretty much all the slices except for i guess simplify 3d which is who knows how alive that still is um prusa slicer cura craftware they, they've all got a company behind them that sells 3d printers so they've all got an interest in actually implementing the features that's that benefit their printers mm. um but, so yeah like you said maybe being able to trick your slicer into treating mm -hmm. the pen as a pva tool head that just prints the interface that is now zero millimeters thick that could work that could totally work if that stuff works out there is the is it called slicer plus plus project something like that there I is no there is a branch of prusa slicer which has really cool features implemented there so for example um ironing already ironing will be implemented in new prusa slicer version yeah i was gonna say that um, in the, in the alphas but there is a branch of prusa slicer where pretty cool features are implemented by the community and also i think my gradient infill that i did a while ago is um is available in there well anyways if if you can motivate one of those guys and just point out how that could be working this could be a way how that could be implemented in a slicer and i think implementing that in in comparison to non planar printing printing non -planar. yeah yeah <laughs> is 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 way easier so i well, it almost sounds trivial at this yeah. point because it's really just it's just an interface layer that you add on top yeah. of everything else so yeah we'll see uh i think it's really cool uh guys very, yeah very cool take a look at the video and also the the post in the prusa forum 
maybe maybe somebody's interested in there and can work on that um, a little bit more and m maybe you can um, implement the the slicing part already with existing software just by tricking uh, the slicer with the MMU approach or multi-extruder approach yeah. should be working or or a cure with the scripting feature yeah um, that that could be extremely powerful there cool all right next one by Tomasa88 um, asking about recycling PLA uh, about Ad North they've got a program for sending back PLA for recycling have you tried it and have you tried to recycle PLA Well, I so. I have tried recycling PLA with my filastruder. It yep. works basic basically. Though I don't, I'm not a hundred percent sure if there's a real economic value behind that. Ecologically, yes, it does make sense, but economically, um, the amount of work that you need to spend sending PLA prints to a company, they need to sort that by color. How can they be sure that you only put PLA in there? So can they sort between PLA, uh, PDG, ABS, whatever could be in there? Um, yeah. What else do you have in there? Metal shavings? I don't know. Those could all... Yeah, be a problem for the later extrusion process. Uh, then you need to shred that material down. Then you need to dry it. Yada yada yada. So, so overall, does it actually have an ecological benefit versus just using mass-produced new filament? And is that if there is a benefit, is that worth the trade-off of having a degraded material? That's. I think that's what it comes down because I mean the the alternative of um, disposing of you know failed prints basically is either it gets landfilled or it gets burnt. Yeah, um, that's the two things you, you get typically. And I think right now here in Germany, if you if you put your stuff into like the mixed plastics uh, recycling, uh, well, bin at the recycling station, that's all going into the incinerator. Um, being used for for energy, yeah, it's like it's like burning oil um, for power, which I guess is better than land. Is it better than land filling it? Uh, well, nah, not not really, not really. <laughs> um, it is a nice approach. So, yeah. I don't know if it's if it does make. I don't know if it's really making technical sense. Um, economic sense and also ecologic sense because shipping material out in a container also produces co2 uh, yeah i don't know and i mean there's been a few companies that have tried the pla recycling i guess ptg is really good for recycling because it doesn't really degrade um, but there are a bunch of companies that have tried this approach, but I've not seen one of them really take off. In a way. Yes, I have printed a bunch with recycled materials, but those are usually, um, well, this is plastic waste that is industrially produced so you really know which material yeah. that was um, maybe it's even from your own injection molding uh, facility that is next door so you yeah. don't have shipping you have a ton of material you know that it's good material you know that it's the right material it has all 
the same color, for example, or the same size already and stuff like that. That makes things way easier. So the um, the RPETGs and RABS and whatever yep. you can find nowadays are usually made from, I don't know the proper uh, English term for that, but the material that is still in the extruder screw when you, for example, change materials. So you, I don't know if you right. extrude that out or if you just take everything out. And the stuff that is still sticking in the extrusion, well, around the auger and stuff like that, that is used as the recycled PLA. Okay, as as far as I know, yeah. that's that's being purged out with a with a different material. Then, three um, yeah. D K um, Berlin, they have I think an Elman or some other yogurt manufacturer next door, and they get PLA waste from PLA yogurt cups or something like that that they then hmm. produce new material out of or even spools yeah spools are spools are perfectly good material yeah that too and i mean that the, uh, the spools are usually marked let me just grab one here um well interestingly the pressurement spools it, are not marked At they they, they are the marked outside. yeah i've been looking for that for quite a bit it's they're marked on the inside i think they are polycarbonate i'm not 100 sure but they are marked right. So yeah, well, with those you know exactly what sort of uh, plastic it is, and you get like non-contaminated mm. stuff there, right? Um, I'm gonna let you do the next quick question real quick. I gotta get different headphones because these are really starting to hurt me. <laughs> no worries, right? because you're you're the expert on on mini lathing. Yeah. Um, mine mine is in pieces because the motor is is shot, <laughs> unfortunately. Yeah. So Copain Junior is asking. Um, Anyone kind enough to tell me where should I look for sources to learn metal, lathe, or milling? Um, so if you are interested in starting to use a, a lathe or a milling machine, there are a bunch of resources around that are not just showcasing what they're doing, but they also, well, get into the process of machining. Um I'm a fan of YouTube, so when it comes to lathe work, uh, Blondie Hacks, um, even this old Tony, well, he, he doesn't necessarily do tutorials, but he at least he at least tells a little bit about the process that he is running. Then also, oh, I need to remember his name. Um, there's one guy that has been working on mini lathes for centuries and he has also a really uh, good YouTube channel where he also has a basic series of ba basic lathe operations that you usually do and he tells about speeds and feeds and tools that you're using and just take a look at that. There are also a bunch of uh, books around. There's actually... One book that is called, I think, Machining for Dummies or Lathe Work for Dummies or something like, like that, if you pre prefer something to read, where you also get information on the whole process, starting uh, what is the machine, what kind of machines are there, what tools are available, um, and then the different operations that you're doing and how to approach a specific project. So, yeah, just uh, check those guys out, and I will also check... Um mini minilathe.com how's his name 
Uh, well, when Frank you look that up. Frank Hoos. Okay. Um, yeah, I, get, I, I don't know how much you, you covered, um, but uh, I guess two, two things to, to add, um, obviously, for, for CNC stuff. Uh, NYC CNC, um, great channel. Winston also Moy. very Yeah. Winston Moy, Winston, Winston Moy. Moy as well. Yes, yes, yes. Um, those are actually pretty similar in, in what they teach and show um, because they, they also show you the failures, uh, which I think is just as important yeah. as, as showing the success and, and the, the best practice. Well, and Winston um, was using more like hobby-grade machines. NYCNC, they have their big Haas machines and things like that. True, true. Yeah, I mean, Winston Moore is, is using Shapeoko, Nomad CNC, and the Pocket NC, the 5-axis. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, e3d have uh have one of those um when when i visited them the last time they had i think one of the early pocket ncs ah, cool. and, and sanji was just like dude this thing is just this is sick <laughs> um and yeah i guess i guess nothing beats really being at the machine and being able to feel what the material does and, mm. and being able to try different things um I think I know that the question is uh, about manual machining, but um, you know, jumping into CNC without having machined uh, material with a manual mill or lathe, I mm. think you you lose so much of the just feel for what the material mm. does, what your tool does, um, what it likes, what it doesn't like. Um, so, you know, having just a cheap mini lathe. Um, I think that teaches you just a a whole lot about how material behaves and and you can then take that into um, bigger tools and more automated tools. Yeah, definitely. This is also one of the reasons why I probably won't convert my mini lathe to a CNC because for once, the pleasure of really working on metal with your hand is something great and um yeah it's it's a great learning experience you can show somebody how such a machine works and just say okay rotate that dial and if it doesn't feel right anymore then um it's probably also not the proper way to do it and just yeah. start slow and uh you don't yeah mini lathes are not that expensive um buying some some brass and aluminum is also not not that expensive um yeah I actually saw the, the cost breakdown of, of what you spent on, on accessories and tools. Where did you post that? Uh, uh, well, on my YouTube video, yeah. On the on the video, yeah. okay, yeah. I was like, okay, well, I see how you're, you're actually enjoying this a lot more than I did. <laughs> because you, you've you've spent like three times as much on that mini lathe than, than I did. Because I, I really just have the bone stock mm. mini lathe. I don't have the quick change tool post. I don't have, uh, you know, a bunch of, of uh, tools for it. I have like maybe one or two carbide tools and that's it. <sighs> yeah, but I'm, I, I guess that's a lot more satisfying actually having the proper tools mm. for the job. Yeah. All right. And Last question for today by uh, Adam Ryan. Can you test printing ASN on the Mini? I guess that's the Mini, the Prusa Mini and not the Mini Lathe. And try to work out if it's safe. And try to work out how to manage to make it safe if it is safe. So I've got the Mini. Oh, I've got some filament loaded in the Minis behind me. Maybe you can see it in the video. I don't think you can, but I have recently printed ASA on it, uh, which is Prusament ASA, which prints at 260 degrees Celsius, and it printed damn near perfect. 
It's a bit over-extruded, which I'm surprised that it is, but um, the print itself looks great. It is strong. It's uh, It worked perfectly. 260 degrees on a hotend that I'm not sure how much of an all-metal hotend or a, a lined hotend it is. Um, I would guess that if Prusa are putting that as a feature into a printer that they can vouch for it working and for it being safe. Uh, but I will still take apart the Hodden and actually see how far down the PTFE goes because there's, it's not very clear how far it actually goes into the heated zone and into mm. or through the heat break. From what I gather is um, that the PTFE actually stops like midway through the heat break and that means that it's just getting to maybe slightly above half the Hodden temperature. Mm-hmm. Um, so you get like 25 degrees ambient, you get a 260 degree uh, tool head going halfway down the heat break. That should take you to somewhere around, I don't know, 150 degrees, I'd say, uh, which is perfectly fine for PTFE. So you mentioned that uh, it might even be possible to print the PCAVS blend, right? Yes. If you check the blog post on the PCABS. Uh, that yeah, Prusa released. They even say that it's possible to print. Uh, yeah, print it also on the mini. With, and so the PC blend possible or recommended? Um, this means <laughs> that all of uh, this means that all of our printers, original Prusa i3, Mark II S, Mark III, and even our original Prusa mini can print with PC blend. And well, they're saying that it uh, needs to be printed at 275 degrees Celsius. Yeah, so the box is 265 to 285. Yeah. So that's smack in the middle. So okay. I I guess it's it's not a... Well, yeah, as, as you already said, a, a total Bowden star... Well, not um, a total... Uh, lined a lined hot, hot end. Um, it's something in between. If you want to be even safer um i have just seen that bontech released a well stainless steel heat break for the prusa mini that uh, should be more suitable to bontech are doing heat breaks now uh bontech Interesting. doing all upgrades for 3d printers from i don't do, i think uh, do they do nozzles yeah they even do nozzles Dual drive extrusion upgrade kit for Prusa Mini. Ooh. Yeah. <laughs> A lot of 3D printer accessories. Um, it would be interesting to see how that heat break really differs from the one that is currently in the machine. But um, they at least claim that this would be an, up, an upgrade making, I don't know, printing those higher temperature materials more feasible or safer, even though I don't think that um, Prusa would claim that you can print PC or would their printer allow to print uh, at 275 degrees Celsius if it is if it is dangerous or uh, it would also block the printer in no time because the PTFE would degenerate and then just yeah. generate a big blob of material at the end. So, yeah. Yeah, so I'm just looking at the Prusa Mini uh, heat break. Actually, we'll have that linked below. Um, yeah, and it, it looks like a an actual just a V6 heat break. 
um, with the M6 thread up top, then the constriction, um, and then you have the wider, I think this is a six millimeter slug um, that, uh, you know, goes into the heatsink. So yeah, basically turns it into functionally, I guess, a V6. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I'll have to, to take apart the uh, the mini because as it, it it looks like it is a pretty beefy uh, heat break. So uh, yeah, I've not I've not experienced heat creep with the mini yet, but I've also not printed you know PLA in extreme situations where I just let the the printer sit uh, for a while and then try to start printing. So far, it's been working well. Um, but yeah, degradation stuff might also come into play at some point so cool right oh oh god that that headset change was uh, <laughs> really necessary um you know with with wearing glasses um yeah. you've got the cups of the um of the headphones actually pressing down onto the ear and onto the um frame of the glasses and it's just like this pressure point where it's like ah I can't take it for five minutes. No, I can't. No, I can't. <laughs> All right. I think I think that concludes today's podcast. It was again longer than expected, but yeah, that's always how it is. Um, yeah, especially when you've got to catch up for five weeks, three podcasts. Yeah. yeah. Um, let's let's try and get on track more. Yeah. Thanks everyone for listening um, and watching it on YouTube. If you want to support us, check out our Patreon pages down in the description. Um, if you have questions, leave them down in the comments or tweet them to us at the Melt Zone. And I hope to see you guys in the next one, or we see you guys in the next one. All right. Goodbye. Goodbye.